waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. In this episode of Waking Up, Flourishing in the Human Space, Polly and Mike speak with the renowned guest Ken Wilber on the complexities of meaningful communication in contemporary society. The dialogue delves into various themes, including stage theory, developmental psychology, the challenges of navigating woke culture, the resurgence of psychedelic experiences, and the pursuit of personal and spiritual growth. But just recently reading Manifesting Zen, I've read it three times, I realized that he is also envisioning this same arc of development. It's yeah. the arc of development of the entire space-time. It's, it's all of samsara is going through this same kind of integration that truly is represented in these stage theories and yeah. also in physics. I mean, in, in, in sciences, it's the same series of logics that are developing in the same arc. And it's it's pretty amazing to see the level of particularity and precision in the descriptions, whether they're from Zen, from stage theory, or now from physics in, in some cases going beyond space-time and the idea that consciousness is generating space-time. There's something that's that's very remarkable that I would say I feel very grateful in my little itty-bitty lifetime here I've been able to see this arc that seems to me to be where everything is going. And that's what I call the spectrum of consciousness. Yes. And every, all things go through that major spectrum. And I agree with that. 
But I also recognize like the difference between a first person experience and a third person experience. Those are real. And that's yeah. why we actually have three completely different perspectival pronouns, first person, second yes. person, and third person. Right. And right. those are all importantly different. Going through the same generic broad movement forward, that all use the same generalized set of logics and go through the same generalized bands of the spectrum. There are important differences as well. So I think we're both talking essentially the same thing. I want to get in one question about psychedelics, if I can. We yeah. seem to be going through a psychedelic renaissance. I was in Denver yep. in June for Which this. I'm very glad about, by the way, even though I'm not a psychedelic person myself. But I was most upset when they made them illegal in the late 60s because I had at least read so many of the great authors that were writing about the psychedelic experience. I mean, Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, they all wrote fantastic books on the psychedelic experience. And I tried a few, I tried psilocybin a few times. I tried acid one or two times. And I never had any particularly profound experience, although I did have a slight satori on that one psilocybin. But I just didn't like what it made me feel like in, in general. But I was really upset when they outlawed them because I was aware that it, for many people, at least, it was a genuine doorway into a true mystical experience. And even when Harvard discovered them and it started giving all its theological students doses of acid, and like 70% of them reported the first ever mystical experience they'd had in their life, and these are theological students, I was going, way to go. This is going to be important contribution to society. And then the next thing I knew, the authorities went, oh, that's enough of that, and outlawed the whole lot of them. And I was just infuriated because that stopped our research. Yeah, let's keep testing theology students. Let's test normal students. I mean, let's trust so, I don't know if you're familiar, but the head of MAPS, Rick Doblin, did a 50-year follow-up to the Good Friday experiment. And 50 years later, the majority of participants said it was the most significant, or sec other than the birth of a child, most significant right. experience. One question I have, which you've just touched on, is how important it is to integrate these experiences into one's daily life to have any kind of genuine personal growth from them. They're just right. tools or possible tools. Can you share any insights, the most effective ways that individuals can incorporate the profound experiences into an ongoing spiritual practice and life journey to ensure that their insights aren't just fleeting moments, but catalysts right. for lasting transformation? Sure. The most important thing is to try to identify what the actually most important core insight or experience was that you had and try to describe it. So maybe it was a full-blown, I was one with everything. I mean, I'm not looking at this room, I am this room. And once you've identified what that core experience was, then repeat it as a thought. And so you're bringing it into your daily experience. So I'm sitting here staring at this wall. Well, no, actually I'm one with this wall. And by the way, this is a completely off the, Mark, so uh, forgive me, but there's a, a really clever 
experiment that was invented by Douglas Harding. And he wrote a book, he's from the Buddhist London Society. He wrote a book called On Having No Head. And it, it's true. I mean, it, it, it's a very effective way to slip into a non-dual unity experience. And he starts by saying, notice that of all body parts, the one that you cannot see is your own head. Right. So you can see your arms, your legs, but you can't see your head. You can get a mirror, but then you're not looking at your head. You're looking at the image out here. He says, and the reason is that you don't have a head. And what you think, where you think your head is, if you actually look and you try to feel your head, what you'll feel is everything you're looking at. So looking at this wall, no, actually this wall is sitting right on my head, right where I thought my head used to be. And I am that wall. That's right. Oh, and I'm that tree and I'm that sky. It's all sitting right where I thought my head was. By using that as a way to remind me that I'm one with everything. And you just incorporate little almost gimmicks like that. And particularly if you've had an experience of like overwhelming compassion, then you just notice, oh, I have this extraordinary compassion for people. And just repeat that as a thought. Oh, I have extraordinary compassion until you feel it, uh, that compassion. And then do that on a day-to-day basis. And it really will become a habit. And it, if you work it into your personality in that specific way, and then if you want to work this unity in by having no head that by go ahead and do that that's always available but it's it's finding the actual core of your psilocybin experience or your awakening experience or your satori whatever it is and identify what that core feeling or thought or emotion is and then just keep repeating what that core is that's a very effective way to work it into your actual being and awareness. Thank you. That was beautiful. And that brings in the issues, some of the issues that you were talking about in terms of speaking for oneself, using we, using you. These kinds of activities uh, you know, require language, the speaking part. And the other kinds of insights that we have that go beyond language, whether they're mental images or whether they're simply the experiences of being one with something, they don't get rehearsed into language sometimes. And I think, again, the experiences that people have when they're in deep prayer or the experiences that they can have in a born-again situation, if they were able to integrate those experiences within a framework that would be more ordinary. I mean, ordinary for me means the walking around reality that we have. The reality is teaching us. I mean, it's it's not separate from us. And, and a lot we are taught through obstacles, through things that we don't agree with or that right. give, us, give us pain and suffering. And in a sense, Jesus is the great teacher of that. I've just been reading a, a book on the yoga of Christ by Ravi Ravindra, and I'm very impressed by the book because it, it looks at the Gospel of St. John and it looks at Jesus in terms of his teaching through the crucifixion. Yeah. And so I think that... And if, John emphasizes all the uh, Gospels. He emphasizes the mystical. It, yes. It's only in John that Christ identifies himself with God. Yes, yes. 
yep. before Abraham was I am. Those are all very profound. Very unity. profound. Yes, yes. And so, you know, it's like if if people can integrate their awakenings through using words that bring them into ordinary reality, the ordinary right. reality can teach them. But if they if they kind of and this is the other thing about wokeness also to go on about that. But if you keep it, if you if you sort of keep things to yourself, if you say, well, that's my private awakening, or I don't want to talk about that, it becomes egotistical, and very quickly, particularly awakenings, can seem like because I see these people in therapy, you know, I've seen people that have had some pretty profound awakenings, whether they're on psychedelics or even in Zen, that have led to greater narcissism. Yeah. You know, it's like there's this sense of like, I'm special right. or I have had this, you know, and I think, wow, what a waste that you should separate yourself out yeah. with, with your awakening. And you've, <laughs> I don't know, to me, this uh, needs to be taught much more thoroughly, you know, especially with the psychedelics, because there you can have people having these waking up experiences who who really don't have much emotional maturity. And it goes towards narcissism really easily. Yeah. So, you know, I just and wanted to introduce that. That especially happens with the regressive movement that you see in wokeism. Because virtually yeah. every developmental psychologist has at some point written a sentence like, increasing development is decreasing egocentrism. Yes, yes, exactly. Stages of lessening of an egocentric focus. Right. right. And so you get less and less egocentric the higher you evolve. That's right. right. If you progress, you're regressing to more egocentric states and stages. And this is automatically a problem because confusing small self and big self is an occupational hazard of Zen Buddhism and every mystical tradition the world over. Yes. Because uh, crazily enough, almost all mystical philosophies recognize that there's a small self and what is often just called a big self. Yeah. And they're night and day. The small right. self is egocentric and it's dualistic and it's very, very self-focused. And, and it, it's a very essentially an undeveloped sense of self. And then as you develop and get more and more ego, less and less egocentric, you're getting closer and closer to what's called big self. And mm -hmm. big self is another word for God or God. Godhead. Yes. When Christ says, yes. I and the Father are one, he means I'm my one with my own true self. Right. And Zen will call it big mind and small mm -hmm. mind, like Suzuki Roshi used to. But they have certain similar-ish traits. Because in egocentric, of course, you're very much identified with your separate self. So that's a very egocentric stance. But with big self, big self is sometimes what Ramana Maharshi called the big self, the I hyphen I, the I, I. It's the I that is aware of your I. When you look within right now and look at your small self, it's your big witness self that's doing the looking. Right. And right. so there is a sense in which it is truly called big self, but it's a big self that's not egocentric, it's not focused on how wonderful it is, although in, in a certain objective sense, it is a very special self. It's God. Mm -hmm. I yes. mean, it's I amness. 
And before Abraham was, I am, because this big self is timeless. It's spaceless. There's no space between you and the wall. You are one with the wall. And so if you're not careful, it is fairly easy to confuse big self with small self, simply because in some sense, they are both a self-sense. The witness is aware of itself as a witness, as a big self. It's what is aware of all of the objects in this focus. It's what's aware of your small self. And before Abraham was, I am. So that's a somewhat special stance, but it's not special in the sense of egocentric or look at me or self-glorifying or any of those. Those are all egocentric holdovers or confusions. But and many of the woke, many of the woke ideologies focus on identity, which is definitely the egocentric. Because, yeah. you know, when people say, this is my, you have to use my pronoun, this is my identity. Why, why is there so much focus on identity? That's kind of a mistake to begin with, you know? It's like well, focusing on identity is even like a narrative about your ego, which is, you know, starts to be a dictate about how you will appear to others. And it's so misleading. It's a painful, misleading turn to take you know and i know again that it's that it's not, not intended to be that and yet it results in that and again you know getting back to our earlier part of our conversation if our most elite universities are teaching that this is the way to freedom is to identify with something and then fight for your identity and make sure your group gets justice and make sure the opposite group gets whatever, you know, thrown out or something, then there's this reinforcement of egocentrism, as well as obviously conformity and this mythic thinking, but also simply the egocentrism is very painful. It's very painful yeah. to walk yeah. around feeling like you have to defend your identity all the right. time. And right. uh, that's- uh, I think there is actually, I wrote a book called The Atman Project. Hmm. And the Atman Project was one of my first developmental, fully developmental models. And it traced the growth stages in a circle from birth, which is in the Christian mystical great chain of being, goes from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit. And at birth, the infant can't distinguish his physical self from the physical environment. Right. So it's one. There's a. Yes, a it's a non. It's non-dual. It's a non-dual. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. That a-dualism is not to be confused with non-dualism. Right. And every right. romantic thinker in the world starts with that confusion. Yes. 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 One with its world. It's in Eden. It's living this life of a wholeness and oneness. No, it's not. It's just its physical body can't be distinguished from the physical world. The mind, the symbols that the mind used are not yet differentiated from the right, things. Right. Sense. Right. And and because of that, you you have next to the archaic stage is the magic stage, because right. magic, often called word magic, because the infant thinks that to alter the word because it's not different from the thing, it's to actually alter the thing. Right. right. It has thinking all the time, particularly as it 
grows and itself evolves. My point was that the reason I called things the Atman project is that we always have an available an intuition of our infinite true self. Mm -hmm. uh, intuition is given to all sentience because the true self is ever present. You mm -hmm. always have this true self, no matter what stage of small self ego development you're at. But because we are always intuiting this infinite Atman, we often confuse that intuition of an infinite Atman with some finite thing. And so all of our desires for finite things in the world are really searching for that infinite Atman. And so it's in some form of Atman project, yeah. including pieces of growth that we go through. And so I think the fact that everybody can intuit their real self, their real Atman, that even some of these woke people occasionally, I mean, they think, they introspect, their ego identity is so important to them. They're always looking within, even if it's just at their ego. But the thing that's doing the looking is the witness. Mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. It, to some degree, occasionally intuit that real self. And... Mm -hmm immediately apply it to their ego so yeah yeah I you know that the infant yes the infant is not separated out from the environment and it's all one and yes it's true it's much more like the dog it's not it's not like you know this is the breakthrough of of real non-dualism but but that capacity is there in all of us from the beginning to have right. that unitary experience and not to separate out when we do separate out, you're correct, I am sure, I, I agree completely that sometimes it's the motivation to find that oneness, and then you overdo the ego identity. But right. at the same time, there are these serious fundamental mistakes that humans make that lead to war, you know, repeatedly. And only humans do this. The dog is not doing it. The tree is not doing it. The cockroach isn't doing it which is to objectify the world. And then we objectify others in our species. And right. then we, then we kill or destroy, like to just to destroy what's, you know, taken so long to create. Every human being is given birth by somebody who sacrificed to give birth over a long period of time. They sacrificed that. I've sacrificed it a couple of times, actually three times when I had an ectopic pregnancy the first time. So, you know, it's a big sacrifice to give birth then it's a tremendous amount of resources to raise a human being, yeah. all sorts of beings. So you and destroy it takes all of them. Extraordinary long time. Extraordinary long that. time, all sorts of resources. And then destroying that being, you know, in a moment with a drone, a bomb, a, you know, whatever. This is really, really grotesque to do that. Right. And, and it's I, the essence of egocentrism. It's the essence of it, and it's not necessary. So, you know, that sense of egocentrism and particularly pulling into, I am different from you. You are a this kind of thing that is not and does not deserve what I deserve. This creates- You are subhuman. Yeah, subhuman, you know, not like me. Right. And the the implications and the consequences of that kind of move, I I get afraid, are also buried again in this kind of, you know, identity politics, wokeness type of thing 
that is using education, resources, all sorts of wonderful things to produce results that are truly disabling. They're not good. They're not right. good results. They're really false. And, and then it, you can add the psychedelics to all of this and it doesn't necessarily get better. You know, I mean, I yeah. want to come back to the Renaissance, the psychedelic Renaissance. And Mike, how do you see the psychedelic Renaissance, you know, coming into this, <laughs> this world that we're in where there's this fragmentation there, there is also, you know, a lot of emphasis on the ego among educated people. Well, I think I think adding from this conversation and from what Ken shared is adding the stage development theory to their to the awareness of the people taking psychedelics. And with the recent publication by Gould Dolan in Nature in May last year about how different psychedelics open up the critical window, I think the implications of the importance of integration and having a much bigger window to fit it in, a perspective and understanding the conflation, I think, can it's related to what I think you call the pre-trans fallacy. And so understanding where you are in your stage would be right. incredibly helpful input in right. terms of integrating this experience so that it actually helps you to move uh, into a less egocentric stage as opposed to having it blow up your ego and thinking you are all that right. is. Right. And that, by the way, is the only approach that I have found works when I'm trying to talk somebody out of their wokeness is saying, let's look at the stages that we all go through. These aren't linear, and we have many different types of intelligence, and we can be at a different stage at any of them. So you're going through a very multiplistic, pluralistic experience. But I want to just point out certain basic levels or bands in the spectrum of consciousness that you have. And when they sort of start to get that there really is a magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral stages of development. And then they, when I ask them, okay, where do you think you are? And it slowly, their eyes get huge and they're bug out of their head. And they're like, oh, well, when I'm woke, I'm very magical. That's not really high, is it? Uh, not really. <laughs> and the claws in the tooth theory, right? <laughs> then stop stop applying it to the rest of your life because guess what there is no santa claus there is no tooth fairy and there is no real woke state you're not in a real state when you're being woke you're in a very egocentric state which is one of the lowest stages of development you can get in and by the way in in, in a, even a very egocentric state i maintain that every Ego can intuit Atman because Atman is her present <clears throat> ultimate reality. And they can intuit it. But what they tend to do, since they've already confused their big self with their small self, is they'll apply a lot of the power and the strength of Atman to their ego. And with that, they will gladly kill other people. And that's why wars necessarily get so ugly is they're doing it through an egocentric perspective with the force of God, the force of Atman. And how else can you explain a person gladly going in and shooting another person to death? 
right in front of them. That's an enormous power. That's an enormous strength that makes you think you have the right to do that. And the Ottman Project and all wars of Ottman Projects. This, you know, from a, an on-Ottman perspective, and I wanted to really hear how you see that shift from in India from the Atman to the on-Ottman, but from that perspective, the repercussions of killing another human being karmically are so tremendously severe yeah. that they last for lifetimes. And again, if people understood that, if they could see the implications, because, you know, and I've said recently when I've been asked to say it, that 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 killing and dying from being killed are very different from dying from a natural yeah. cause. And the whole aspect of dying itself is a spiritual experience, but killing is not, and being right. killed is not. Right. And that karma that the people that are doing the killing to kill humans with, you know, so many implications, what is being destroyed is is really so grave. And now it seems as though there are many people, people who are educated and who are, you know, otherwise, it seems like thoughtful people, people that don't recognize the graveness of doing these things. I do think that we've moved so far away from religions, you know, we don't any longer take that as a truth. And so instead we're, we are into things like governments and politics as our truth, which is really so, it so fails uh, yeah. people, you know? Uh, and so that, that sense of the graveness of killing, yes, it, uh, it is done in the moment of identifying with the Atman, I imagine it is done then, but then there are so many implications that are. Yeah, all you have to do is read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. Um, if I've often, I've, I admire Tibet as a group of people enormously. Yeah. I've always said, look, if there's a spiritual problem anywhere in the world, the Tibetans have figured out how to handle it. And they, they just, they're on top of everything, including. Uh, who but the Tibetans would dare describe the three nature stages after death that you go through on the way to being reborn? Right. And all you have to do is read the Tibetan Book of the Dead to see what an extraordinarily glorious experience death is. I mean, according to the Tibetan Book, as soon as you die, you and everybody who dies naturally are instantly enlightened. They're immersed in the absolute unity consciousness that's infinite and eternal and radiant and pure light and all of that and so what they typically do with the dead is have people read reminding statements often called pith statements of the fact that okay you are now one with ultimate reality recognize that oneness and be with that because what happens a certain amount of time later can be from seven days to a month is that they, you move out of that oneness or causal purity into a subtle or dream-like or archetypal type stage. And there, there are all sorts of gods and goddesses come around and you're attracted to the ones of a certain intensity of light and you're not attracted to others. But what you don't want to do is, is move away from them because then you can move into various hell realms and that's an unpleasant part of your journey if you do that 
But then when you finish going through that subtle stage, you move into the growth stage, which is the physical days of your rebirth. And then in that, you'll see a man and a woman making love. And if you're a boy, you'll step in between them to try to separate the father away from the mother so you can have the mother. And if you're a girl or female, you'll try to separate and get mom away from dad so you can have dad. But what you don't realize is the moment you start to try to separate them, you're instantly born with them as your parents. Right, and so, right. that, so you, you not only don't separate them, you're actually biologically hooked to them. If you faint during the death process itself, you're missing that oneness thing. You know, there, there are many complexities in dying. And one of the most difficult complexities by all accounts is a life review. Like if you if your life right. review is so torturous that it takes you essentially into fear, anxiety, and pain, then you're going to miss that opportunity for oneness and you're going to be thrust into that dreamlike realm right. where there's a lot of confusion. So, you know, in a natural dying process under the best of circumstances, you glimpse that oneness or perhaps you join it and you move through, but if you have harmed a lot of people in your life, your dying is not going to be the kind of thing you were describing. And again, I think if people could understand this continuity between uh, the, you know, the movement of consciousness from one kind of embodiment into another embodiment, there's continuity there and you can prepare for it. You can think about it. You can talk with, particularly, you learn a lot from Tibetans, like you said. You know, the Tibetans are really, really good at mapping this. When people say, oh, nobody knows what happens after we die. Well, of course that's wrong. That is wrong. There are a lot of people that know a lot. And you, right. you should get interested in it. And then there are people at the University of Virginia that are studying it too. Sure. Uh, the near-death experience, there's been a lot of scientific research on that. And what's so striking about it is the similarity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 true. It's true. Yeah. This yeah. is truth. This is what truth is. And so, you know, the thing, though, that this being bound up with one's ego and then creating harm and particularly creating war is is so grievous and so unnecessary. There, There's now not only knowledge, but there are all sorts of practices and ways of being to avoid this, we do not have to do this anymore. We're not running around with sticks and stones and rocks and so on. Yeah, and the unnecessary part is what makes it so grievous. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. It's horrifying. Absolutely. You don't have to be doing this, but look, you're shooting every person you can see. Yeah, I know. You have I know. to be doing that. And it's, it's, it's so, it's really particularly, I think, at this moment in time when we're I would say there is a way in which we're on the verge of, of having a deeper understanding of consciousness yeah. and, and of its development and the stages and death and the movement of consciousness from lifetime it's to lifetime. Misplacements, it's Atman projects. Yes, right. All of, them. All of these things. And at this very moment that we should get thrown into these other things, really? Yeah. You know, like really, and especially intelligent people, is this really yeah. what we're going to do? I I guess we are, you know, I mean, when the, when Claudine Gay quit, I thought, whoa, you know, whoa, this is just not a good thing because she should have stayed and learned and articulated and, right. you know, in first African-American president, I guess the, the second woman president of Harvard, I'm not, I only read this, I don't know this for a fact, but 
you know, this is a big opportunity that she could have stayed with. Yeah. And the fact that she didn't said to me that uh, the forces are difficult. They're difficult. Yeah. yeah. But they're not impossible. And so is the egocentricity that remains in yes. all of us to some degree. Because that was, she really took an egocentric way out. Yes. So yes, exactly. Exactly. Look, I'm out of here. I'm not even going to put up with it. I don't have to put up with this. I'm better than this. I'll see you all around. We'll right, right. With my no. loss. Y'all will suffer. Bye-bye. Right, and right. I and you know, and then she also said, look, you know, there are those people who are after Harvard and they're after the elite universities. Really? I mean, you know, could we just have a conversation about this? But uh, you know, ultimately there's a kind of irony that I feel that this is an irony that the three of us, the three of us in our conversation, we could sound like libertarians here. Yeah. You know, we're sounding like, you know, we're going to go out and defend freedom. I never would have thought that that would be the position I'm in. I, yeah. I thought this was a kind of a progressive position. And suddenly it's a libertarian position and people are suspicious. Some of my friends, my progressive friends, that I would defend free speech. Well, you need it. In order to grow and develop, you needed to have these conversations. You can't do this thing without speech. You can't do waking up, like you said, without bringing it back into speech and rehearsing even what your insights were and then talking to other people. And then you gradually see that, in fact, you know, the mind of God is very close by, but it's it's always kind. You know, it's always kind. It's never going to say, kill that person. That's not the mind of God. You could test that out really simply. And so, yeah, it's not going to say that according to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's a little bit iffier. Well, there was a lot of egocentrism and mythic thinking in the Old Testament. You know, I mean, those are one thing that those are the definitely the mythic thinkers. And, you know, I mean, I, there are things I disagree with Jung about, but I, I do like some of his work very, very much in his answer to this, Carl Jung. Oh, yeah, I'm a Jungian analyst by training, but yeah. you know, in the answer to Job, he said that the reason that God wanted to take human form was in order to develop the awareness of his awareness. He wanted to develop human right. awareness because he right. didn't he lacked it. He was too mythic. I mean, he was right. he didn't have the awareness. And so he couldn't be aware of his own awareness. And so he decided essentially, I've got to become human to learn that. And so that is really what we do. We have an advantage with that. It's even over the Old Testament. You know, we can we can become aware of what we're doing and, and we can right. stop doing things. And uh, But that's not been happening recently on some fronts. And it is a, a great shame. And the only thing about God becoming one man is that you see a little bit of a mythic holdover there. Yeah. And that it's the big self becoming one small self, where actually yeah. the big self produces every small yeah. self. Right. And right. the mystics stumble into this reality, and they're always saying, all men are Jesus. Yeah. Everybody, not I, but Christ lives in me. Everybody right. can say that. Yeah. And that's a little bit more rational and less mythic. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of wonder about the language of Jesus sometimes, like, uh, you know, yeah. in, uh, but I mean, I think, well, who knows? No one really does know how all that language got translated from here to there either. It's like it's the, Buddha, the Buddha was, you know, written down in 
454 years after he died? Well, right. maybe, you know, <laughs> I can't remember what happened yesterday. So, you know, I, I don't think I would be doing a good job of 454 years and ago. All but... sutras start with the phrase, thus I have heard. Thus I have heard, right. And it's supposedly Ananda, a Buddhist cousin, right. who has heard and is writing down what he's heard. But every sutra starts that way. Right. It's very unlikely the same person heard. But that's what happens when they realize their universal self, the oneness. They all truly feel that they're that big self. And that big self was present when Buddha was present. Yeah. Because it was his self as well as yours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so Mike, bring psychedelics back in here. Yeah. <laughs> before we before we say goodbye. Do you have something that you want to bring in here? Well, actually I was I was thinking about just from from the conversation, the issue is about well, one way of looking at it, I'm I'm thinking about the inability to hear because of the stage I'm at. One of the experiences right. I've noticed is in trying to even just lay out or discuss stage theory is right. people at certain stages hear it as a threat to their right. ego. And yeah. so there isn't even the possibility, or I've not found a, let me say, an easy way to actually have the conversation. And right. so revolving, I guess, in a way through all of this is I keep hearing, well, you know, we need to express this in words. We need to speak to each other. We need to speak to each other and try to reflect on maybe this space between the small self and the big self. And yet right. the challenge in language is I'm only going to hear it depending on where I'm viewing it from. Yep. And That's so, right. you know, from the psychedelic perspective, I see I see aspects of people mistaking the experience where their small self is mistaken right. for the big self. And then they think they have something or are something and now they are to lead. <laughs> and it just seems we're at a we're at a place now where it's really challenging for people to slow down enough just to hear each other that it's as if we're we're losing the ability to listen in right. in a more respectful open way yeah mm -hmm. and the woke movement isn't helping that because yeah. it of course intentionally shuts down hearing right and that's that's what's so unbelievable about as a movement Yes, and the notion which you mentioned earlier that you're going to a university where you are supposed to really push the envelope on what you think and openness, and you're having people shut down anybody who has an opinion that they don't want to hear, that they don't right. even have the potential to hear something or tolerate difference. Right. And again, right. this is directly related to stage theory. Yeah. So and I was wondering. I and that's why I continue to see some version of developmental psychology becoming part of a top common discussion that we have. Because first of all, I think it's possible because some developmental writers are very interesting. They're very clear. They're extremely intelligent. Jane Lovinger is a good idea. Robert Keegan has had a fair amount of success with getting his books out. And he talks his basic five-stage spectrum. But it's the only thing that digs into the woke paradigm of thinking because it actually points out the different levels of thinking that you can be at. And when people first hear that, they'll often take it in a negative way. So you want to introduce it with particularly simplistic 
approaches. So I want to talk to you about what happens to us when, from the time we're born to the time we become an adult. And you might notice in that space that you're not the same as you were when you were one years old. Well, when you were one years old, you couldn't even talk. Now all you do is talk. So what were there stages that we went through? Were there steps you have to do? Because all learning usually involves some sort of step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step learning process. And then it turns out that there are steps that we have gone through. And once people figured that out, once psychologists figured that out, they actually started studying those steps. And the incredible thing about it is that there are now dozens of models of these various steps, but they all come to very similar agreement on what these major steps are. And I want to talk to you about those. And then we'll talk about ways you can figure out what step you're at, if you want to. And then we'll see what that means. And then and more importantly, if you want to get to a higher step, what can you do? By the way, I just, Ken, I want to jump in there because that's actually how this podcast started was ah. I, I was introduced to Polly when I found you and Polly having a discussion about waking up, growing up. And then yeah. I, I, after working with Polly for some time, asked her, so how do you grow up? Yeah. yeah. And I talked about stage theory yeah. and I, you know, and the thing about stage theory that to me that's really been so deeply remarkable because I taught it for a long time and then I backed away from it just because it's so complex and people don't necessarily seek out that understanding. And, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. And so most people that are in the psychotherapy business, they're not interested in stage yeah. theory. But what I've, I've come back to it because the idea that adulthood is not one single thing, you know, right. like becoming an adult. Oh, we're all adults here. We're, you know, we should be able to relate as adults. We're adults. And when I saw, first of all, when I saw this woke ideology developing, maybe it was even before that, when I began to realize that that there wasn't an open conversation going on about a lot of things that were happening in our government, that were happening, you know, on a larger perspective, that there were there were there were sort of manipulated conversations. Then right. the woke thing came out and so on. I began to see that it was important to come back to stage theory because what I would say for me, the thing was propaganda, that yeah. propaganda appeals to conform conformists. Most of the population is at that stage, just a little beyond true conformity to the group. And right. they're so available to propaganda. And so there were all kinds of propaganda coming in and one of one of those things eventually became this postmodernism and wokeism and so on. But that began to also eat up some of the conscientious sort of yeah. post-conformity. Right. And I got I started to get scared then. I started to see, whoa, there's a reason now to really return in a serious way to this underlying logic. When I say logic, a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by logic? I simply mean yeah. that there's there's a map. It, it's a secure map. It's right. like the Tibetans did the map about diet. It's a structure. It's a structure. It's a map. It is universal. And there are developmental theorists who did a map that is universal, that's as good as the Tibetan map for dying. Yep. This is a map for adulthood. And there are predictable changes. And if you don't know that, you might get lost in the propaganda, right. you know? And so right. I've been I've been coming back to stage theory and then, 
And since then, you know, I read Sasaki's book, Manifesting Zen, and I saw from his articulation much more clearly than I'd ever seen that the whole proposition is moving in one way. Right. And, you know, when you when you see that, it becomes ever more important to talk about, you know, adulthood and how we change in adulthood. And there's no psychedelic, there's no Zen sitting, there's nothing that can substitute for that change because it's it's actually, it's an everyday integration of the subject and object that is moving along a certain continuum. And you you can't, maybe you hasten it a little bit by taking some psychedelics because you might be able to see into the nature of love in some way but you can do it without the psychedelics also. I just began to see how important it is uh, to talk about stage theory. But, you know, you've introduced something today that I haven't even tried. I've never tried to uh, sit down with somebody who's in one of these stages of development that where they're arguing about, you know, justice and equity and so on and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're we're all kind of caught here. I'd, I'd like to look with you at this map. You know, are you willing to look at it? Because people don't come to me to look at this map. You know, they, they don't right. come for that reason. But right. just to, you know, to offer it more like an offering, you know, like right. this, this is this is out there and it will help you. And where do you think you are on this? Yeah. On exactly. this stages? and the way I always begin that particular discussion is with the example that I just used with you all, which is think of where you were when you were one years old. Right. And look at where you are now. And just right. think of some of the differences. You couldn't even talk, right. let alone understand language. And right. then you learned language. How did that happen? What did that happen in, in all at once? Like one day you couldn't talk, and the next day you woke up, you're saying the Gettysburg Address. And then, no, no, you probably went through several steps or stages, right. right? Yeah. Well, are those stages, they have been actually studied. And scientists, once they figured out that there was a difference between a one-year-old and a 20-year-old, they started looking at the actual steps that you go through to get from age one to age 20. And again, the remarkable thing about all of their studies is the essentially similar number of stages and types of stages that we go through. And down the line, introduced generally waking up and growing up. But my point is just to get across the growing up stages. If I do introduce waking up, I'll point out that even though they're all going through essentially the similar broad spectrum of consciousness, that there are certain lines of development that that are slightly different. So Mm -hmm. we have a first person line, we have a second person line, we have a third person line. And those are real differences. Mm -hmm. There's a real difference between moral development, first person, development. Moral development wants to deal with how you and I, as a we, get along and how we should treat each other. And even though that's an important part of our self-growing up, you can see that there's a difference because when you're in the self-growing up stage, you're in a first person. You're aware of that stage. You experience a first person waking up experience. And you know what it means. You know that it means you're one with the universe or whatever, but that's a very real, acknowledged, awakened, aware, first-person experience. But when you're going through these stages where you're learning speech or you start to 
get fairly evolved and start learning mathematics, let's say. You go through certain stages in that growing up development, but you're not really aware of them in the same way you are with the waking up experience because they're not first person immediate realizations. So if you're at, say, a conformist stage of development and you introspect, you won't see a big sign that says conformist stage. Right. It's just not a first person experience. If you're in an analysis, you do start to see what your assumptions are, you know, because you're investigating with another person. Of course. And that's and that investigation does allow you to see some of it. But even with that, nobody is in an analysis going to give you a map of stage theory. Right. You, you don't know that there are other stages that are unfolding and particularly in adulthood, because people say, well, it's random after you get to be 25 or so, it's just random. You know, the way you develop, there's no one thing that contributes. No, it's not random. Yeah. It's not random. And And they should also know that they're getting therapy and the inventor of that therapy was obsessed with stages of development, whether it's Freud, Young, or Otto Rank. They all made profound developmental contributions. Right, right, exactly. And as you pointed out, it is interesting to me always that, you know, the Tibetan theory about rebirth does include the Oedipus complex. (laughs) You know, it's like it was was out there. Maybe Freud was a Tibetan in an earlier lifetime. (laughs) And he just discovered that, you know, in the the Tibetans to hit upon the Oedipus complex. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting because, you know, I've heard Ayang Rinpoche teach both in India and the U.S., and when he teaches about how the, you know, the, the entity that's coming back in through the mother and the father, how they feel about the mother and the father, he changes it in the U.S. versus in India when he teaches there, you know. It's a little different flavor because the, he knows the culture is a little different. Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of stages of development that was around for the early inventors of psychotherapy. But I think there are a lot of people who don't think it's scientific. They, they don't know that there's a scientific theory of adult development that's very predictive and very yes. predictable. And it's it, you can go, you can apply it to different cultures and so on. And there's an uh, enormous amount of evidence, evidence scientifically yeah. generated evidence. That's I right. mean, there are state, Kohlberg's stage model has been tested in over 40 different cultures. Yeah. And they have found no exceptions That's to right. his major stages. That's um, right. They found, well, in India, they have a stage four and a half. But yeah. it is, it's yeah. really exactly between stage four and stage five. It's a, yeah. it's a real four and a half. It's but just... that's it. I mean, and and uh, Lovinger, of course, has been tested in numerous cultures. I said all over the world, and they and some and and some of the as Mike has pointed out to me, some of the German scientists that are using her work have added a stage. They've added a tenth stage called flow. That's interesting, but I don't know if it's well, absolutely necessary. It gets very interesting because the higher you go in growing up, the more likely it is that you'll have some sort of waking up experience. Yes. It's not yes. necessary, but it's more likely that yeah. you can have a waking up experience. And then it shows up if you're testing that person, that waking up unity or oneness or whatever the qualities of waking up are, they'll start to show up in their tests. 
Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I've scored so many sentence completion tests. When you get above uh, four or five in her language, that would be kind of beyond individualistic. The the metaphors, the poetry, it's amazing. Yep. You know, you, you see things that sound like Zen koans. They're written on this the sentence completion test. It's not, it's not, it's it's rare. It's not common. So it's very, very rare, but it's produced again and again. If you get a large enough data set, right. the, you know, the, the other thing about, about adult development is if you have a room of a hundred people, the likelihood is you got three stages. You don't have the right. full range right. there. So again, it's not like most of the time you see everything from the pre-conformist impulsive stage to the most integrated, you know, autonomous integrated. So you don't see that in any population right. typically. Yeah, so. that's what I call the center of gravity. And the center of gravity is general stage that you're most frequently operating from. And But that, that also includes bits of the previous stage and bits of the successor stage. So that's the three stages that you commonly get in any crowd. In any group. Um, yeah. so we're, we're just about to finish up here. It's been fantastic talking with you as always and i i'm sure we'll talk to you again and and uh i just i'm grateful to you ken on so many levels for your work your being and i look forward to you continuing here on earth with us for a while still i hope you will sure certainly <laughs> yes it's been a delight talking with both of you i've really Is enjoyed it? the opportunity i really have been following your work for 40 years so uh -huh. it's really been a pleasure from beyond That's ego great. and beyond yeah yeah wow. yeah so we'll be in touch again, I'm sure, where we're trying to form a community of people that is in conversation about consciousness and its development. And we'd love to bring you into that community. I mean, you are in it already, but right. <laughs> in a more, more obvious way. So thank you so much for the time yes. and for today. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment right now to go to realdialogue.com and join our membership community. For a short time, we're offering annual and lifetime membership in the Real Dialogue community at a very limited cost. There you have access to countless hours of teachings, interviews, conversations with Polly, Mike, and prominent scientists, sages, and seekers who share your interests in waking up and flourishing. Again, go to realdialogue.com, join in a live conversation with Polly and Mike through your membership. The second Tuesday of each month, we have an AMA that we do together. As always, we really look forward to meeting you and to hearing your perspective. Please like and share the podcast with friends and family. If you know of people who you think would benefit from this conversation and would like to take part in our monthly AMAs, consider sharing this with family and friends and consider giving them the gift of membership in our community. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Coltrane and is part of the Center for Real Dialogue. It is available on all major podcast channels for free. Thank you for listening. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session two will be February 1st through 4th, and session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com, and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training, 
or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com.